From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. Here's an understatement for you. The last decade has been a challenging time for legacy print media. Heck, it's been a challenging time for online media. How many of your favorite local newspapers or blogs or websites have called it quits? You have to adapt or die. And the best ways to adapt aren't always clear. Few people have as sharp a perspective on today's media landscape as my guest, Father Matt Malone, SJ. Father Malone has been the editor-in-chief of America Magazine since 2012. America is the U.S. Jesuits' more than century-old flagship publication. And under his leadership, America has transformed from a magazine with a website to a full-fledged multimedia company, boasting a top-notch online presence, strong video production, and a whole collection of original podcasts. Father Malone's position at America also gives him a unique bird's-eye view of the Catholic Church, which might be facing even bigger challenges than legacy media. As Father Malone prepares for the end of his tenure at America at the end of this calendar year, it was really fascinating to hear his takes on the last decade and what roles a Catholic media company like America can play in our polarized culture. As we share this interview with America Magazine's current editor-in-chief, I'd like to take this chance to remember one of Father Malone's predecessors, Father Drew Christensen, who died last week at the age of 77. Father Christensen was an eminent global politics scholar and led the magazine from 2005 until Father Malone took the reins in 2012. In a lovely remembrance posted on America's website, Father Jim Martin remembered his old editor with these words. For someone who never wanted to be the editor-in-chief, Drew turned out to be good at it. Smart, thoughtful, consultative, wise, and kind. That last trait was the most important. Drew was an exceedingly kind person, always asking after you, after your family, wondering how your writing was going, recommending books or articles he thought you would like, offering you help whenever he could. Kind, mild, friendly, peaceable, self-effacing, generous. May Father Christensen rest in peace. You can subscribe to ANBG wherever you get podcasts. And thanks for joining us. Well, Father Matt Malone, welcome to ANBG. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. So I uh, invited you on because it has been announced that your tenure as uh, editor-in-chief of America Magazine is winding down. You've been there since October of 2012, um, which was the month I got married. And as my wife can tell you, that feels like a long time ago. Um, so I'm curious <laughs> for- So you're for, coming up on a big anniversary too. That's right, the big the big 10. So we'll get together and uh, and toast each other, I guess, uh, for making it this far. <laughs> so that's, that's a long time to be in a job uh, in the Jesuits or anywhere. And so I was just hoping to chat with you about uh, your experience and um, take a, a moment to kind of look at that time and see what you've noticed. Uh, it, about America, about Catholic media, sure. about the church, about the country. We can, who knows where we'll go. Um, but I have a lot of questions okay. for you about all those things. So first of all, I guess maybe now, like kind of looking back over that, that time, um, when you think about some of the things you've really wanted to emphasize at America, what are those things at the top of your mind, things that you feel like were your, your top priorities, things you've, uh, that 
you've really worked toward? Well, uh, yeah, thank you. That's a, that's a really good question. I, I think you know, the most important thing that we've done at America is successfully transform it as an organization from, uh, from one that really had a, a really great weekly print magazine. It, had a, uh, it was a great legacy, founded in 1909, a vital voice in the church and in the world uh, for, for so much of that time. But, you know, like all legacy media, we, you know, we face the same challenges everybody else did. So, um, you know, all, all print magazines were looking at, you know, how are we going to take this brand uh, or what theologians would call a charism and take it and, 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 and really go from a print world to one in which we were, you know, multi-platform and, and digital first. And that really has been the inside work of transforming America for the last 10 years, because, you know, we had this opportunity. We, we owned a building in midtown Manhattan and we had some of the most talented people uh, in publishing who were writing for us. And we said, you know, let's not just save this magazine. Let's actually also transform this work into um, a really, you know, a, a leading media ministry right, of which uh, our magazine is is but the flagship. And that has been the, the great work of the last 10 years, um, you know, transforming the organization uh, in such a way that it can really meet the needs of a 21st century audience. I would say, you know, that the editorially, you know, the thing that we've tried to do in America, which I think we've largely succeeded at, is to create content that reflects a diversity of voices within the American Catholic Church. And the reason we decided to do that was because, you know, when we looked out from our window overlooking the church and the world, um, you know, we saw a lot of the same things that everybody else sees. We saw that, you know, this kind of partisan ideological combat in our secular politics, but we also saw it in, in our church. And that was something that was deeply concerning to us. And we said, well, you know, if we can provide a platform, a place for people to come together and and disagree with one another, but around a shared set of values um, and model a kind of charitable and smart conversation, then that will not only be a good thing for the church, uh, but we can hold it up as as an example to the rest of society. And, uh, and that's what we tried to do on the editorial side. I think we've largely done that um, I, my concern of course is, uh, I don't know, I don't know if anyone in the secular space has noticed because that side of things has seemed to all, seems to have only gotten worse. Right. I mean, that's a big question, right? Is like, can we even do that anymore? Do we have the ability to disagree without demonizing, um, to, right. and I don't know. So what, what is, you, you see it, you think it's happening. Like at least you see it happening within America. Like I'm sure that's a, a challenge for some people just to even acknowledge that we can try this or that we should be trying this. Oh, I, yeah, no, I know it's a, it, it, it's, well, we should acknowledge it's always been hard for human beings to do this. So. <laughs> um, but it's gotten, it's gotten particularly hard in, the, in the polarized world in which we live. And, and I would say, I regret to say that, that I think the problem, at, you know, writ large has gotten much worse in the decade that I've been working in America. So we have been swimming upstream in that regard. Um, but I, 
you know, people will say to me, oh, isn't that nice? You know, Malone's out there tilting at windmills again, um, <laughs> saying, you know, can we have a, we should have a civil and smart and intelligent conversation in which people can disagree and they can have an argument and so forth. But here's the thing. Here's how, here's why I think um, we have to try and do that. Um, the, the ability to do that is one of the basic presuppositions of democracy. I mean, um, democracy is not, uh, you know, it doesn't require us to, um, you know, to, to agree with one another. It actually presupposes that we don't. Um, what it requires though, is that we, that we are able to do that in a way that is civil, that's intelligent, um, and that preserves our, our commonality. So, uh, while, you know, allowing for our differences and, you know, if we're unable to do that, that's very serious, very serious matter for um, democracy, the health of democracy in the American Republic. But secondly, in the church, not only should we also be able to do that, but we we ought to have an easier time doing it. Um, and we ought to be able to show people uh, how to do it um, in a compelling way, precisely because our unity within the church is not around a, a, a set of shared ideas, our unity is guaranteed by the Lord himself and, um, you know, resides in the indivisible body of the Lord. Um, uh, in other words, we're not, we're not some political society or one other faction that is organized for public action. We're, we're the body of Christ, right? We're a sacrament, not a polis. And that's, that's why we, we above all, ought to be able to disagree with one another, um, even around contentious and difficult issues, but we ought to be able to do it from a place of charity, knowing that ultimately um, each of us is in, in, in involved in the work of discipleship, which is not ultimately about being right, but about being holy. And those are not always the same thing. I'm curious for you, like when you look back at your decade there, do you have an example in mind or a couple of a time in which you feel like America really lived that mission and came up with either a single piece or a series of pieces or an audio video or a collection of things that you held up and you showed to your staff and you said, yes, this is the way, or you showed to your board or to other Jesuits and said, this is what we want to be about. Other examples that come to mind for you easily? Yeah, there there are several. Um, <clears throat> so I would say, most recently, we just had a debate um, across our platforms about whether politicians, and particularly the President of the United States, Joseph Biden, who's a Catholic, ought to either present themselves or be admitted to Holy Communion if they advocate for positions in the public square that are at odds with what the church teaches, say on the, and chief among those is the issue of abortion. No one is, it has seen, I mean, I don't, no one is confused about what, how the church and all of us in this conversation feel about abortion. Everybody uh, knows what the church teaches on that question. But you have different opinions about how that ought to be lived out in the real world, not only about what the public policy should be, but what the church's response should be to, to politicians who pursue a particular course of action. And, you know, we had 
uh, two bishops who openly disagreed in their uh, approach uh, in our pages and on our platforms. We had a conversation on a podcast about it. We uh, on three podcasts about it. We had uh, an entire readers forum of people who responded around that question. We were able to, you know, uh, get responses from the Vatican uh, to weigh in on in that conversation. So, from my point of view, that was a really that was a really good example of how of how America ought to function. It ought to be a place where we can convene these where we can convene Catholics um, and they can come together into a conversation. And it's a place where you can go as a Catholic and hear that conversation and take part in it. And we're so on that question, which was not just being discussed in America, but it was being discussed everywhere, even in the even in the um, in the secular sphere. But I'm proud to say you didn't have to go anywhere other than America to really to really be exposed to uh, the, the, the range of opinions about that question. Um, and then, you know, you you make up your own mind. Right. And and we trust that um, the education that that the Jesuits gave you either at a high school or a university, um, which is most of our readers and listeners and viewers, uh, that, that you will be able to make that discernment. I have a lot of follow-up questions. Um, one of them, yeah. most recently, about your listeners, viewers, that's a good question. Like, who who is encountering you uh, in different ways? What do you know about that? I'm, as someone who also is trying to reach people, curious about like who, you're, who you see your audience is and, and what you're learning about them. Sure, sure. So uh, America's audience today is what it has always been. Um, and it hasn't changed for at least 50 or 60 years. Um, it, uh, they're overwhelmingly Catholics. They uh, are uh, well-educated. They are college graduates. They uh, are active in the church. Um, they go to mass at least once or twice a month. Um, they're active in their communities. They tend to vote, tend to be the people who write to their congressmen. Um, and they have some affinity with the Jesuits. They they went to one of our colleges, one of our universities, one of our high schools, uh, or you know just were in a retreat, or maybe they were just introduced to our work through, say, the spirituality of Jim Martin, Father Jim Martin, or 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 another you know prominent Jesuit, and that is our audience. So, um, and the good news. <laughs> From a, from a commercial point of view for America is there's 3 million of those people in this country, which is amazing to think about, right? Um, it's a large number of people. So when I came to America and I said, hey, um, what, what are we doing with 40,000 subscribers if there's 3 million of those people, right? Um, that's the problem that I, that I set out to solve for. And, I would say in, you know, from an editorial point of view, you know, when you step back, um, you know, presenting from this list, there's sort of demographic qualities. When I think about that audience, what I think about is you have to trust that I've learned to trust and we have in America, we've learned to trust the education they've received mainly from, uh, from, from the Jesuit schools, either in the high school or in the collegiate network. Um, that, that, in other words, that unlike, say, a lot of people who are engaged in the public debate or on social media, that you can trust that our readers actually do want to 
hear a diversity of viewpoints, that they actually do, they are interested in, in hearing alternative points of view and then making up their own mind in light of the things that they've been taught and they've learned. And uh, you can trust them to do that. And I would also say that they're, uh, the other thing that I've learned about them is their incredible loyalty to the society. Um, not a blind loyalty at all, because they could be some of our harshest critics, but um, their faithfulness to us uh, and their wanting to know what America has to offer and 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 sticking with us, even when we say things that, that they don't they don't like uh, or when we do things that disappoint them. That's been impressive to me. It's a real important relationship. I want to ask you about saying things people don't like and disappointing them. <laughs> you, uh, you are editor in chief. I can't imagine how many decisions you have to make every day uh, about all kinds of things, like in terms, like even in what you're going to publish or not publish, who, what you'll accept or not. Um, all of those decisions. And I'm just looking back for you. Are there ones that you remember that were particularly hard? Ones that you really had to um, lean into your Ignatian discernment for, or just ones that can like kind of bring you into uh, a difficult, challenging time as a editor? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> those are the ones actually that, per that pop first into your mind. Sure. Um, I should say, first of all, a lot of the decisions about what we publish each day are not, they're not made by me now. They're, they are made by our, a really fantastic team. Um, and one of the things that I, that I set out to do was, you know, America was really set up when I arrived, like a Jesuit community, right? The, the editor-in-chief was the superior, and then there was everybody else. So everything came uh, into my office and left from my office, and it was very clear we were not going to be able to publish six times a day if that was the case. Um, and also, it made for boring content. If everything begins and ends with me, I don't even want to read a magazine called Matt, right? So we you know we 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 change things a lot of uh, so that we we now work in teams and those teams are able to commission stuff uh on their own which they do so a lot of times what i see during what you see during the course of the day is when you see it it's also when i'm seeing it um now there are exceptions to that like if it's a big political story or it engages issues of faith and morals or something like that then i've definitely been a part of that conversation uh and decision making process um and so the ones that I would tend to think of, not only because they leave some sort of psychological uh, remnant, but also because uh, those, are the, those are the very decisions I would have been pulled into and asked to make, uh, those, are the, those big decisions are the ones that first come first to my mind. And that's a long way of leading up to my answer to your question, which is, um, yeah, I mean, there was a moment when <clears throat> we were hosting a conversation about uh, economics and you know, we have a colleague based in Toronto who is a uh, really he's a very fine journalist. Um, and but apart from the work that he does as an as an opinion journalist, he's also um, he, he's a committed socialist. And he, uh, I think, he's even uh, a member or supporter of some version of the Canadian Communist Party. And he wanted to make an argument that he thought that this was compatible with Catholic faith. And which, of course, he believes in good conscience that it is. I don't think that. <laughs> and um, I've never thought that. And uh, I, I think it's an objectively false claim. And, and America has been battling communism for a century. But I thought to myself, you know, 
if we, we, we've had, you know, Arthur Brooks is committed uh, market capitalist on our cover. We have had libertarians making their argument for libertarianism and Catholicism. Stephanie Slade has done that in our pages. Said when we've certainly had um, people in the more and less on the center left make, making those uh, arguments. I said let's let's give him a shot and then and make it clear that this is his opinion. It's not America's and and that it's one among many and let her rip. Uh, that was hard because it was there's a lot of there was a lot of blowback. Why are you doing this? Why are you platforming him? Why are you? Why do you believe this? Because they mistake someone else else's opinion for yours, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I thought even if that just provoked a conversation about what arguments are acceptable uh, to platform, then that was worth having. A second example, which is perhaps even more straightforward, is. America has for many years, you know, remained committed to a broadly textualist approach to constitutional interpretation. And so we have supported Supreme Court nominees who take that approach. And and so we endorsed in an editorial the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the U.S. Supreme Court. And then in, in light of what happened with Dr. Ford and her accusations during the confirmation process, uh, we withdrew that recommendation. Not uh, because we were convinced that Dr. Ford was telling the truth, we acknowledged we didn't know who was telling the truth, but because we thought that the reputation of the court would be better served by having a a, a nominee who didn't have a, a cloud over his head. That was uh, a huge um, uh, episode. I mean, we really, we, we received, I think, uh, 700 phone calls. And people were outraged that we had done that. Um, and I don't think, in my 10 years, that's the single most angry the world has ever been in America in one moment. And uh, I mean, I shouldn't say not, I mean, not everybody. Some people thought that was great. <laughs> and a lot of people were like, well, why did you endorse him in the first place? <laughs> sure. No one's going to be happy um, then. No, but I would say uh, that was a tough time for the staff only because uh, I don't think they had ever encountered that before, and 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 I said to them, "Look, the, the, this is the the watchword of the day is fearlessness. This is what we're here to do. So we're here to to offer our perspective on contestable issues, the intersection, the church, and the world, um, where there's a compelling moral issue at stake, and uh, I was like, and this is one of them, and we had already waited on this, and we felt we had to do so again, and and we did, and uh, you know, at the end of the day, we, we wound up gaining subscribers from that publicity, but that's not why you do it, right? You do it because you think it's the right thing to do, and you know, you might be wrong in the end, but um, it's, it's, it's why we, why, why we exist. Do you remember what that experience was like for you just to go through that? Was it a lot of stress? Was it kind of feeling secure in your your own mission? I'm just curious when a lot of people are are mad what that's sure. like. Well, I, I I mean, I I was most concerned for my staff and uh, for the uh, people on the editorial team, uh, for the wonderful woman who answers our phone and what she was hearing from people. Uh, I was angry about on behalf of them 
and uh, I was worried about them. For my own part, I mean, I, I, I I'm accustomed to to, to being uh, uh, beloved and disliked, <laughs> and um, and I, I recognize that that is 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 uh, almost always because of of uh, the office that I occupy and what I represent. Um, so I, I, I don't, I don't tend to take it personally, I, uh, either, either praise or blame. So another, um, easy question uh, is about the, the, having a Catholic president now, which is an interesting thing for you. So you actually got to interview him as well when he was vice president and have a background yes. yourself in, in politics and political science and curious, um, how having interviewed him and knowing and having a Catholic president just from your how has your your experience there, your position at America, affected the way you've been kind of watching uh, the Biden administration? And what are some things maybe that you've noticed that um, you might not have noticed had you not had those experiences? Um, well, I would say, I mean, like a lot of like like a lot of people, you sort of recognize the iconography of of a Catholic, right? Uh, and it's a little, it's, it's a little disconcerting because we, we've never seen it before really. Um, though we've had one Catholic elected president previously, but you know, like him having ashes on yesterday during his press conference or making the sign of cross of the, of the cross before he does something or pictures of him going in and out of Trinity church. It's still kind of, it still feels kind of weird that the president's a Catholic. So there's that this sort of basic catch cultural Catholic reaction to it. Um, and 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 I and and I wonder sometimes what kind of uh, if that's kind of if that's having any kind of evangelical effect, you know, whether it's it's prompting people to be interested or questioning or critical around Catholicism. Um, so I mean, I suppose time will tell us that, and uh, or survey work or whatever. But uh, we don't have enough data to evaluate it at the moment. But. I think the thing that's unfortunate to me, that seems unfortunate to me, is um, this debate, which I'm very proud we hosted, uh, about you know the president and politicians and communion and you know contestable social issues like abortion. See, they have a way, as important as they are, they and as important as the, you know it is that we have them they have a way of sucking all the oxygen out of the room. And I, I, I really, I'm disappointed that we didn't, so much of the public conversation about Catholicism is about that. And, um, and that, that, you know, these first couple of years of the Biden administration have been taken up with that debate because there are a lot of, I mean, look, there are very serious issues that separate Biden and Catholic values, Catholic social teaching, but there are also many that you can, you know, where we have something in common and um, he at least professes to subscribe to the same values around, say, immigration as the church does. And is, was there an opportunity for us as a church to sort of move him closer to to a, to a policy around, say, that issue, uh, immigration and the border, that more accurately reflected the Catholic worldview on that, an opportunity that we missed because we were debating this other issue. And um, and so that's what I wonder about, like what 
what is the uh, what are the opportunities we've missed for working together because we have as a church have such a hard time getting past that other issue you have a unique perspective at the american church um just in terms of the the stuff you're dealing with the things you're publishing the stuff you know about who's reading you what's going on so i'm just curious from that perspective like what would you say is a one of the say biggest challenges the church in the u.s faces today and then maybe an opportunity a cause of, of hope for you Uh, I would say two, there are two things that concern me about the church and that in the United States, and they both involve uh, running a deficit. So one is uh, we're running a festive deficit, a, de a joy deficit. And I really believe that when it comes to evangelization, you know, giving an account of the joy that is within us is is the most effective form of evangelization. And, uh, and I don't think that we do that in a way that is public or, um, or, uh, or that's really visible to people. Um, and uh, so I worry about our joy deficit because I think in the end, that is actually what attracts. Uh, when people say, why are you smiling? You say, well, you know, I just came from church. Or I was just thinking about something my, you know, priest, priest or deacon or uh, someone said to me at church over the weekend and thinking, you know, I think it's going to get me through this next hour or whatever it is. Like giving giving an account of our faith in outside of that, our outside of Sunday is uh, something we we're, we still have a hard time doing. And uh, and and we don't or we only do it when we're mad. Right. And uh, so giving so I worry about the joy deficit, uh, or at least that's how it's perceived by others that we might want to invite into this experience of faith. And secondly, um, I worry about our imagination deficit. So um, the, the risk for Catholics always is... Uh, because you know there are certain there are there are certain truths, certain perennial values, ways of looking at the world and being in the world that come to us as gift and cannot be changed. Um, we can sometimes have a hard time telling the difference between what those things are and what uh, those things are not. So, like here in the in the U.S., I think sometimes we we tend to think that our particularly American cultural expressions of Catholicism and, and of how it's lived in this country are Catholicism and, and coterminous with it. And um, a, a lack of imagination in that area will make it hard for us to solve for some of our problems. So it just here's just a quick example. I, I went down to, uh, I was in, as a novice, I served in the interior of Guyana. Uh, the church wasn't born in the interior of Guyana until 1920. It's 102 years old. Uh, it's younger than America Magazine, right? That's when the Jesuits reached the interior of Guyana. Hmm. Uh, it, uh, they see their priest about once every four or five weeks there. And the other, the rest of the time, the villages are served by what are called pastoral lay associates. And yet when I reached those villages, I had just come from Boston where 
at noon on a weekday, if you were standing at Boston City Hall, you had a choice of five masses within an eight-minute walk. So there's the question, like, do you have, um, do we really have a priest shortage or do we have a shortage of imagination, right? Are we, uh, are we really envisioning the problem as it really is a problem, like in, in some objective sense, or is it, is it, does it seem bigger than it is because our imagination is smaller than it should be? Um, so I worry about the joy deficit and I worry about the imagination deficit. In terms of hope, that's easy. I mean, uh, everywhere, right now, everywhere in this country, the church is healing, it's reconciling, it's forgiving, it's marrying people, it's burying people, it's walking with them, it's lifting them up. Uh, we're worshiping God, we're forgiving, we're healing the sick, we're burying the dead. I mean, it's happening everywhere right now and it will you know within in every county on the southern border of the united states there's a work of the church uh tending to the needs of the people there that that's what gives me hope and that's how you have to think about it because all of that is the church when we're just talking about the bishops that's clericalism whether what good or bad whether you think they're great or you think they're terrible if you only see the world through their eyes then you're then that's clericalism you got to think about now what is the church doing writ large and it's doing amazing things uh, quite literally by the grace of god early on in your tenure you wrote a piece kind of about the mission of america and the piece is called pursuing the truth in love which is america's motto the mission of america in right. the 21st century church and in that is one line i just wanted to ask you about um well, one, it'd be fun to revisit that and see if you kind of would write that again or how things would have changed for you. But just even about this one line that America is not a magazine that we publish one. It's not a website that we have one of those as well. It's a Catholic ministry. And both of those words, Catholic and ministry, are carefully chosen. So just curious for you, like how you see America as uh, a Catholic ministry and how it distinguishes then from, uh, uh, you know, any other newspaper or even some Catholic newspapers or magazines or websites. Right. Well, it might be better to reverse engineer it and start with ministry, right? So we're, instead of being, uh, instead of thinking of ourselves as a company, we think of ourselves as a ministry. Every ministry in the church part is, is a participation in the one ministry of Jesus Christ, which is fundamentally and ultimately a ministry of reconciliation. He's, he, he's reconciling the world uh, to God through his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. And so then we look at that and say, okay, well, if we're a ministry, then what does it mean to be a minister to be reconciling people in our space, the media space? And it goes back to exactly what I said at the very beginning. It was about bringing people together in conversation who might otherwise be estranged because they've grown accustomed to thinking that in modern life, you can't talk to people you disagree with when in fact, it's, it's very important that you do. Um, and secondly, Catholic means that, you know, our starting point is in some imagined space like John Rawls or something like that. <laughs> and it isn't a set of uh, basic, you know, 
liberal values, I mean, in the classical sense, not in the partisan sense, like, say, the New York Times would claim to be. But for us, no, that the, te the teaching of the church, the tradition of the church is um, is our starting point. And um, that and it's and it's for us, it's normative. Um, now, for a lot of people, that means that you should never publish or talk about certain things um, because of if you, I, I, I've always felt that if you if you really have faith in the, in the church, uh, in and I mean and believe in it and um, feel solid in your commitment to church's teaching, then that does get then that should give you the freedom to explore other ideas and uh, other alternatives and to dialogue with people who feel differently and so forth. So. Um, you know, that, but it, but it means that we have a starting point and we don't, and we don't pretend at all that it's neutral. So I'm going to let you go, but first I have to ask you again, you're, you're ending your time in a while. We're not, not rushing that necessarily got to enjoy every last minute, but do you know, kind of, do you <laughs> right. know what's next for you and do you get to take some time off? I do get to take some time off and that's, uh. That's something that Jesuits do really well. They give they give other Jesuits usually um, time off to rest, to sort of re recollect yourself and and to retreat, to pray, to discern what comes next. Of course, ultimately that that you know that decision will be made by others. But um, but I, I I would say I, I'm not being coy. I really don't know. Uh, and part in in a that's partly because I, I find it very hard to consider that question in the, when I'm still in the middle of my, of this work, I really want to, I know the thing that I want to do and I have to do over the next few months and that's to finish strong and make sure that America has everything I can give it um, to continue to succeed in the years ahead. Well, Father Matt Malone, thanks again for coming on and uh, prayers for you uh, in your, your final months of uh, guiding the, the group up there in New York. Thank you. It was my pleasure, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leepsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at WeAreTheJesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting jesuits.org weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.